Well, good morning, Baylife. It is good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Travis Lowe, and I am the teaching pastor here on staff. So what that means is that um, probably 10 to 12 Sundays out of the year, I'm here with you all opening God's Word in the mornings, but it also means that I wear a few different hats as well throughout the week. One of the things that I do is I host our Stone Table podcast with my wife where we interview pastors and theologians. I oversee our resources page that has videos and blog posts to help you dive deeper in your faith. And then I manage our foundations classes that we'll be relaunching in the fall of this upcoming year. And that's an avenue for you to grow a little bit more deeply in your understanding of things like the Bible, theology, and church history, apologetics. All of this with the goal of us being deeper and more thoughtful Christians, because that is important, isn't it? If you are in the same place you were when you first started following Jesus 15 years ago and no desire for growth exists within you, that's a bad thing. And so we want as a church to continue to grow and to dive a little bit more deeply into God's Word. And I'll, I'll tell you in many ways that, that this role of teaching pastor is my dream job. I, I get to do all of the things that are not just work, but fun for me. That means I get to lock myself in my office at least one day a week and turn on my Gregorian chants and read theology books, which may or may not sound fun to anybody else in this room, but it's fun for me. Uh, it means that I get to stay current on, on the things that are they're happening in biblical studies and, and people who are studying God's word, not just because that's fun, but because that enables us as a church to find the best resources and the best ways of understanding God's word so we can live faithfully. But I do have a sense that my job is not just to stay current in the world of theology, but, but there's a, a real pressure I feel in this role to just stay current on what's going on in the world in general, uh, to, to be aware of, of the culture that God has placed us in as a church, to continually ask this question, how do we as a church take the timeless truths of the gospel and apply them to our present moments? I always find myself asking this question, what does the gospel have to say to the world in which we find ourselves today? I don't know if you've paid attention or, or maybe even felt this, but the world that we find ourselves in is increasingly skeptical. It feels harder to be a Christian than it was 15 to 20 years ago and certainly 500 years ago. It feels like, like that belief, the belief that we have in the gospel, comes with a lot more questions. People are asking more questions about the Bible and about what it means to follow Jesus and, and how the Bible should be understood and how it expects us to live. We live in a skeptical age. And maybe you felt the, the pressure of that. Perhaps there's people that you sat next to in church who you no longer sit next to because they're not sure that they believe any of this anymore. Or maybe you've got a child who was the star of the youth group who grew up and went to college and came home with a head full of questions and a heart full of doubt. Or maybe it's you. Maybe there was a time in your life where faith came easy, but it doesn't feel that way anymore. You have more questions than answers. You're not quite sure what you believe. It's easy to think that this is a uniquely Christian problem. That it's Christians who are constantly having to defend themselves and answer the hard questions. But the more that you study culture and society and the way that things are moving, the more you see that everybody is feeling this pressure. As we increasingly come in contact with people who don't believe the same thing as us, which the internet has made so possible, 
we constantly find ourselves asking, am I really, really sure that I'm right? It's kind of a phenomenon that you experience if you've ever taken a multiple choice test and you've filled out the bubbles on the scantrons. When there's only four options to pick from, it's pretty easy to, to bubble in C with some relative certainty. But when there's 40 options to pick from, you start wondering, man, am I really sure that George Washington is the answer to this question? We're all feeling this. Everybody starts now to have in our modern world this question in the back of their minds. What if I'm wrong? About 50 years ago, Joseph Ratzinger, who would go on to be um, nominated as Pope Benedict, wrote an introduction to the Christian faith, and, and he puts it like this. Just as the believer is choked by the salt water of doubt, constantly washed into his mouth by the ocean of uncertainty, so the non-believer is troubled by doubts about his unbelief. About the real totality of the world, he has made up his mind to explain as a self-contained whole. Christians, people of other faiths, people who aren't a part of any particular religion, we're all feeling that tension. What if I'm wrong? So the question I keep finding myself revisiting in, in this role as teaching pastor is, what does Jesus say to us? How does Jesus view doubt and the uncertainty that we feel? How does Jesus view the one asking questions, the one who, who finds themselves in a crisis of faith? How does the gospel meet us in the midst of this? I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 43 through to 51. And let me just give you a little bit of background as to what's going on in this text. I don't want to jump into the middle of a chapter and not give you just a little bit of an idea of what's happening. So uh, there's a Canadian theologian, Bruce Milne, and when he's talking about John's gospel, he says it's kind of like a swimming pool. It's like a pool that has a shallow end where a child can wade, and then it has a deep end that can drown elephants. Now, he's not advocating the drowning of elephants. He's trying to make a point that John's gospel is easy enough to understand on an initial read-through, but if you really want to dive into the deep end, there's a lot there. John is, is a really dense portion of Scripture. And you can see it right from the beginning. In, in John's gospel, he opens before creation. He opens in eternity past, before the Son of God became flesh. And he talks about Jesus as the Word of God, and then he moves from that some 15 verses later to this passage we read on Christmas Eve, that the Word became flesh, and we get to Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. And then, within a few verses, he's jumped 30 years into the future with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who's gathered for himself disciples. And John, the author, highlights this one moment in John the Baptist's ministry where he has two disciples walking behind him, which most believe were Peter and Andrew. And Jesus passes by, and John the Baptist points and says, this is the one I've been preparing you for. And then John's disciples leave, and they follow Jesus. And that brings us to our passage for the morning. We're told in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So, the, the previous day in John's narrative, two disciples have followed Jesus. And most theologians would say this is Andrew and Peter because they get mentioned again a little bit later in John chapter one. But this day, the day that we're lingering on here, Jesus goes to a man named Philip who's from the city of Bethsaida and he issues this simple call, follow me. Now this is a simple call. It's two words in the English, but it's actually a radical action on Jesus's part. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as a rabbi. This was a a common vocation. Rabbis were teachers of the Jewish scriptures. They were men believed to be well-versed in the Old Testament who understood Jewish theology well. And rabbis often had disciples and apostles, people who would follow them, people who were committed to their interpretation of what it meant to follow the Jewish law well. But here's what always happened. Disciples sought out rabbis. Rabbis never sought disciples. It's kind of the same thing in our day. Man, if you're a senior in high school right now, you're probably beginning the process of applying to colleges. If you're like me, none of those colleges reached out to you. You had to do the reaching out. You had to fill out the application. You have to write the six-paragraph essay about why you're a good fit for the school that nobody will read. You had to pay the $100 application fee, which is a scam. I'm not bitter at all about this. (laughs) You had to do the reaching out. You had to say, I would like to be taught by you all. That's how it works in our day. That's how it worked in Jesus' day. There are all of these stories of ridiculous hoops that rabbis would make people jump through to make sure that they were actually committed students. They always waited to be found. But Jesus goes to Philip. Philip is not looking for Jesus. Philip has no idea what Jesus is up to, and he goes and he says to Philip, follow me. And that tells us something about God, does it not? That says something about the nature of the God that we serve, because so often we function under this paradigm that God is out there somewhere waiting for us to find him, waiting for us to find the right argument, waiting for us to build the philosophical ladder so that we can finally believe in him. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus goes and Jesus finds Philip. It tells us this, that God takes the first step always. He's the one who takes the infinite step down out of heaven and into the mess of human existence and seeks us out before we even know that we should be looking for him. Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. And Philip, for his part, doesn't seem to ask a whole lot of questions. He just does it. He doesn't ask, follow you to do what? He doesn't ask, who even are you? He just says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. In fact, he's so convinced by Jesus' initial call that he immediately runs to his friend Nathaniel. Now, this is extra biblical. It's, it's not in the text, not even in the Greek. But you can almost imagine Philip in his excitement sprinting all the way to Nathaniel. He's the person who is converted out of some sort of a radical past, converted out of an old way of life, called to follow Jesus, and they can't wait to tell people about who Christ is. 
And you can see Philip in his excitement. I've, we found the Messiah. He's Joseph's son. He's from Nazareth. His name's Jesus. Nathaniel, you've got to come with me. And Nathaniel goes, nope. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He doesn't share Philip's excitement. And throughout church history, people have tried to find a way to make Nathaniel sound less mean than he's actually being. They've tried to find ways to reinterpret what Nathaniel says so that it's not quite so harsh, but I assure you, Nathaniel is not convinced. He is skeptical. He does not buy in to this new cult that Philip's joining. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's the skeptic. And before we, we look at Nathaniel and go, well, he's just being hard-hearted, or he's just being stubborn, or he just doesn't want to count the cost of following Jesus, when you kind of drill down into the culture of Nathaniel's day, when you start to look at the history of what's going on there, Nathaniel actually has really good reasons to be skeptical. He's not just digging his heels in for no reason. He's been told that this Messiah, Jesus, that Philip has found is from Nazareth. Now, for most of us, we've heard of Nazareth because we grew up in church and Nazareth gets mentioned, or because of the Scottish rock band from the 70s and the 80s. But what we maybe don't realize is that Nazareth in Jesus' day is smaller than the campus of this church. It's the size of about one city block, and it is full of almost exclusively illiterate peasant farmers barely getting by. It's not an impressive place. It's not a dignified place. It's not a, it's not a worthy place for the Savior of the world to come from. I grew up a few hours from here, in, not hours, a few miles from here, in the Brandon area. And Brandon is not Nazareth. Brandon is, is a sizable community. But whenever I go somewhere out of state, out of town, and people ask me where I'm from, and I say Brandon, they go, what? Is that like your friend's name or something? No, and then I round up to Tampa. I'm from Tampa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Tampa before. How's that? It's, it, it's, it's not this sprawling, impressive community. It's not L.A. It's not New York. Nazareth is much, much, much smaller. And so when Nathaniel hears the Messiah has come from Nazareth, he goes, that's not likely. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. This was actually a common saying in Nathaniel's day. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. The other reason why Nathaniel is skeptical is because of something that was going on culturally. What we know from a little bit later in John's gospel is that Nathaniel is from the city of Cana. This is the place where Jesus performs his first miracle. Cana was maybe two to three miles from Nazareth, and historically, we know that there was actually a rivalry between these two cities. It wasn't open conflict. They weren't at war with one another. They just didn't particularly like each other. My wife and I live in a community right outside of downtown called Seminole Heights, but it's part of the Tampa area. That, that, that phrase, the Tampa Bay area, encompasses a lot of communities sort of loosely networked around the city. And if you're using it broadly enough, it also includes across the bridge, St. Pete. And every once in a while, one of our friends in, in the area will make the trip across the bridge and move to St. Pete, and I feel deeply betrayed. 
And then they'll come back and we'll hang out and they'll go, oh my gosh, it's so great over there. There's all this art, there's all this culture, there's the Dali Museum, there's these great coffee shops. And in the back of my head, I say, you are dead to me, you traitor. <laughs> because you crossed the bridge and everybody knows that God's favor rests on Tampa's side of the bay. Right? It's, it's, it's not this open hostility, but, but there's, there's a, a sense of, of community pride that, that produces a little bit of attention there. This is, this is what's going on. Nathaniel is Team Cana, and he says, Jesus is from Nazareth. I've been there. It's not as cool as my city. But maybe the biggest and the most significant thing is Biblical. What we know is that Nathaniel seems to have known the Old Testament well. And when you look through the Old Testament, it doesn't say hardly anything about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. All signs point to Bethlehem. Unfortunately, Philip didn't spend enough time getting to know Jesus to know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and moved to Nazareth. Philip doesn't know his own faith well enough to even explain it. But Nathaniel is not wrong to go, hang on, I've read this book, I know what it says, that doesn't make any sense. The Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth, the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. And for many people struggling with doubt today in our day and age, maybe that's someone you love, maybe that's one of your children, your spouse, maybe that's you, the Bible becomes the stumbling block. They go, You know, there's some stuff in here that I really just don't understand. There's some stuff in here that doesn't make sense. There's some stuff in here that feels like it might be a contradiction. There's some stuff in here that I just don't agree with. And it can become this roadblock. That's what it was for Nathaniel. And so, perhaps you find yourself like Nathaniel asking that question, can anything good come from Nazareth? I wonder, though, In your own life, the people who doubt, the people who are willing to push back on your belief in Jesus, how do you handle their questions? How do you handle their doubt? How do you react when that question is thrown in your face? Can anything good come from Nazareth? What about all these apparent contradictions? Having pastored college students for five or six years, I can tell you that many of them were coming from backgrounds where they would ask questions and the response from church was, You don't have enough faith. Just trust God. Who are you to question him? Can I tell you what that reaction says? It says we're scared of your questions because we don't think there's answers. And so many people concluded there's not answers. Whatever church community they came from was too scared to even hear the question. But how does Philip respond? Because Nathaniel is not being nice here. Philip Philip shows up and says, I found the Messiah. It's Jesus. I'm getting ready to give up everything to follow him. And Nathaniel is incredibly dismissive. But Philip's response, I think, is tremendous. Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And he said to him, come and see. Three words in the English. But it was an act, actually, it was an ancient saying. It was a phrase that rabbis used when their, when their students asked good questions. Come and see was sort of a, a metaphor for saying, let's find out together. Let, let's come reason. Let's come study. Let's engage this question. Come and see was an invitation to further dialogue. 
Philip meets opposition, Philip meets doubt, and his response is not anger, it's not defensiveness, it's not who are you to question God, it's come and see. Come and see if this is true. He invites Nathaniel to bring his doubts into the presence of Jesus rather than to sort his doubts out apart from Jesus, which is so often the way that we process doubt. I can't tell you how many people will say, I'm going through a crisis of faith, so I'm going to take a step back from church until I figure things out, and then maybe I'll come back. And normally what that means is I'm going to lock myself in my room and Google answers. That is the worst possible way to sort through questions. Google is ill-equipped to inform you. Siri is ill-equipped to inform you. Alexa is ill-equipped to inform you. There's only two ways we can go when we doubt. We can doubt away from Jesus. We can withdraw from the community of faith. We can withdraw from the presence of Christ, thinking that we'll figure it out on our own and then come back to him. Or we can doubt towards Jesus. We can bring these things into his presence. And that's what Philip invites Nathaniel to do. So can I just tell you, if you are wrestling with doubt or if you love somebody who is struggling with doubt, you will love them best when you adopt the posture of Philip. A quiet confidence that there are answers and a steady invitation to enter the presence of Christ where truth can be found. You know, my own Nathaniel moment came sometime around 2014. I had finished sort of my undergrad in religion at USF, which when I signed up for it as a 17-year-old, I thought that was the same thing as Bible college. It very clearly was not from day one. And I had a whole lot of questions that were raised in that process. And I just sort of stored them away in the back of my mind and said, one day I'll find an answer for it. One day I'll I'll figure it out. One day I'll I'll ask somebody about it. One day I'll talk to a, a pastor about it. And then I became the pastor of college and career ministry. And I said, oh boy, I'm actually the pastor who should have the answer now. And I still don't have the answer to these questions. And it, I started to cycle on them. And I started to Google them obsessively. And I started to find more questions. And I couldn't find answers that satisfied me. And I didn't tell anybody. And it got worse and worse and worse. And it interacted with my anxiety in ways that just compounded the situation as it got worse and worse. And then I started medicating with fast food. Checkers French fries became my coping mechanism. And I remember one night distinctly, it was the summer of 2014, just covered in Checkers French fries. I was sitting on my couch. I couldn't sleep. It was four in the morning. I was so troubled by all of these questions. And I said, I'm just going to reach out to the smartest person I can think of. I don't care if I know them. I don't care if they respond. I'm just going to email the smartest human being I can think of and see if somebody can help me. And so I emailed the former bishop of Durham, a man named N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar in Scotland. And I said, you don't know me. I've never met you. I don't go to your university. I was never a part of your church. I'm falling apart. Can you please help? And I included about four or five paragraphs of, I don't understand this in the Bible, and this piece doesn't make sense, and this feels like a contradiction, and on and on and on I went. And at the end, there was this sort of like um, desperate ribbon that I wrapped around it. And I said, I realize that there's probably no reason for you to respond to this. You have no idea who I am. You've never met me before. You'll never meet me, but I could just really use some help, so please help. And then I went to bed for about two hours, and I woke up to a response. 
The first thing he said is, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your troubles. I'm sorry that you're going through this. I realize that this is a painful event. And I am on the other side of the world and will probably never meet you. And so what you could really use is, is a pastor in your area who can help you with these things. And I said, that's the problem, man. I am a pastor in my area. <laughs> and then he began to walk through all my questions. Hey, this, uh, this thing that feels like a contradiction or an error to you, have you ever read this book? My, my friend wrote it, and he actually interprets in a way that makes a little bit more sense. And, and this passage that doesn't make any sense to you, actually, this, this is the right way to understand it. And here, this question you have, you're, you're just wrong. And he walked through all of these things. And then, at the end of this email, which was much longer than he should have spent responding to a total stranger. He said this, he said, the crucified and risen Jesus is the center of everything we believe. Bind this to your heart and day by day pray for the strength to live by it. This gentle invitation. Hey, you've got a lot of questions. Come and see. Bring these questions towards our crucified and risen king. Don't move away from him. This is the sort of thing that you sort out in the presence of Jesus, not apart from him. Listen, if you're wrestling with doubt right now, let me just speak directly to you. My hope is that we are a church where you can ask those questions safely and where you won't be shamed or scolded for honest questions. But let me beg you, don't sort out your doubts apart from Jesus. Sort them out at his feet. I guess that's easy enough to say, but no doubt in the back of our mind, we're sort of wondering, how does Jesus respond to this sort of thing? How does Jesus respond when, when we bring into church and into his presence all of the questions and all of the things we don't understand and maybe even the things that we don't necessarily agree with? Well, you can see how he responds to Nathaniel. Apparently, Philip is able to convince Nathaniel at the very least to come and see Jesus. And so while he is far off, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him, and he said in verse 47, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus sees Nathanael coming from a long way away, and no doubt Nathanael is formulating in his mind all of the reasons why this is ridiculous. And Jesus points to him, and he says, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's as if he says, here's one of the honest ones. Here's somebody who's honest about their questions. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't crush him. He doesn't say, joke's on you. I was actually born in Bethlehem. Wait till you read Luke's gospel. (laughs) But he welcomes Nathaniel with all of Nathaniel's questions, with all of Nathaniel's doubt, with all of his skepticism. He welcomes him. That should be incredibly encouraging for you if you have questions. Because the posture of Jesus is the same towards those who are honestly seeking truth. Jesus points to Nathanael, and Nathanael is rightly shocked. He says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, I'm just going to be candid with you. I read a lot of commentaries on this, this particular passage. Um, Jesus' response to Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree. And every single one I've read says, it could be this, it could be this, but if I'm just being honest, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. It is one of the few verses in the Bible where people don't have deeply entrenched opinions. Most commentators just go, we have no idea what Jesus is referring to. It was for Nathanael. But this is what's astounding. Nathanael comes with questions. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus doesn't answer any of them. The response that Jesus gives has nothing to do with Nathanael's question, but it breaks him and it rids him of his doubts. And, and maybe this is the danger. This is the danger of bringing our doubts to Jesus, is that you might find out that what you think is the source of your doubt is not actually the source of your doubt. What you might find out is what is causing you to, to wrestle with faith on the surface is, is not actually what's really causing it. Jesus says nothing about his hometown. He says nothing about Nazareth. He says nothing about Bethlehem. Because ultimately, that's not really what's at the heart of what Nathaniel's going through. It could be. It could be that contrary to what you think, your questions about faith are not rooted in Genesis and evolutionary biology or seeming discrepancies in the Gospels. It could be something much deeper. And I'll just warn you, if you are willing to bring these into the presence of Jesus, you might find that you don't doubt what you think you doubt. Jesus meets Nathanael in the midst of all of his questions, and he provides an answer. Nathanael responds to him in light of this, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, and Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference to the book of Genesis, a dream that Jacob has. Jacob closes his eyes and he falls asleep in the book of Genesis and he dreams of heaven being opened and angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth on a ladder. But here, Jesus says they're ascending and descending on him. It's as if Jesus says, I am the ladder from Jacob's dream. I am the meeting point between heaven and earth. I am the point at which the realm of God and the realm of man meet and make contact. But how different that response is from the way that we normally deal with doubt. Because we normally think that doubt could be the end of our faith. When, when, when a child comes home from college having taken a survey of New Testament or an introduction to philosophy class or a, a historical critical class, full of questions we can't answer, we think, oh no, everything is falling apart. When we watch the History Channel documentary with all of the conspiracy theories, we go, oh my gosh, it's all crumbling. We always think that our questions are the end of our faith, but for Nathaniel, it is the beginning of something deeper. Jesus says to him, you thought that was impressive? You thought, you thought it was neat that I saw you under the fig tree? You haven't seen anything yet. You will see heaven itself opened. And you will see that I am the meeting place between heaven and earth.
The same could be true for the doubter in your life or for you. Baylife, my prayer is that we as a church would look at the Nathaniels of the world with all of their questions, all of their doubts, all of their skepticism, and in quiet confidence issue this simple invitation. Come and see. Come and see if this Jesus isn't who he says he is. If this gospel isn't all that it's promised to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you, God. We thank you for the the simple truth that we can come to you with our questions. We can come to you with the things we don't understand. That we can bring these before brothers and sisters and we can wrestle with these issues together. Thank you for inviting us to come and see, to grow deeper in our relationship with you. Lord, make us a people with a heart for the Nathaniels of the world and a heart like Philip towards them. We ask all these things in Christ's name. We say amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us? Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is called. come to the end of yourself do you thirst for a drink from the well Jesus is calling Father, would you fill our lives and our churches 
with Nathaniel's. And Holy Spirit, would you make our hearts like those of Philip? That we would invite those with questions to come and see, would you give us a deep confidence in the truthfulness of the gospel? Lord, this year, would you take our church and make it a place where we see greater things, where we see heaven opened, where we dive deeper into the riches of what it means to follow Jesus. And we call those in our lives to come and see. We ask all of these things in Christ's matchless name and we say amen. We'll see you next week.